Uh, now, for those of you that may not have been here or online with us last week, let me just real quickly catch you up on some things about the book of Acts that are really interesting, I think. Uh, Acts uh, is written by the, by the same man that wrote the book of Luke, Luke. And uh, uh, if you take a class, uh, a graduate level class uh, or seminary class, they, the classes aren't on Luke or Acts anymore. They teach them together, Luke, Acts. Because Acts really is a sort of a chapter two. In fact, there's a pretty good train of thought, and we'll, we'll touch on something tonight, uh, that perhaps Luke had intended to write another one, a third book. Uh, in, it, it, that, that theory is derived from when he says, in my former book, if you remember that, uh, and the thought is that, that the language there gives the indication that perhaps in his former book, and that there was going to be a latter book. And uh, those that have that theory think that uh, perhaps uh, Luke's, uh, Luke's life ended before he could write a third book. We, that's all just theory. But it's interesting. Uh, and there's certainly a connection between uh, the, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And so we're going to begin tonight. We rushed through, because I wanted to get us up to where the baptism of the Holy Spirit, just as an introduction. I told you last week that we would back up a little bit and work through some of these verses more intentionally. And we're going to do that tonight. And I've got a really interesting what if for you tonight. So uh, there's some things that you and I have just always... I guarantee you there's a thing that you have lodged in the picture of what you believe happened on the day of Pentecost that is complete supposition. We don't know that it happened that way. And so I'm wetting your appetite so that you'll sit up straight and pay attention tonight. And uh, so uh, let's begin uh, in prayer and then we're going to begin in verse 12 tonight of chapter 1. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your presence among us. Thank you for this great uh, group that's here in the, in the room tonight and those that are joining us online. We pray, Father, that this would be beneficial to the establishment of our faith and that, Lord, uh, I just sense your presence right now and that each person would do the same, that by your presence and, and through uh, just us getting to be together uh, with you and in your word, Lord, that excites me. I, I can imagine all kinds of possible things, Lord, with believers uh, opening your word and absorbing it. And at the same time, your presence, uh, the Holy Spirit, you, you make that word become alive. And Lord, who knows what you will birth in someone's heart tonight? Who knows what you will encourage or strengthen or heal or, uh, or Lord, some hurt from a past that will get diminished or some ministry that will get born or some, uh, some place that's been uh, a hurtful place in someone's life that will suddenly be made strong, Lord. You can do all of that. That's what your word does. Uh, it, it becomes alive and it goes from our minds into our spirits. And then, Lord, we, faith erupts. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And faith, Lord, dispels fear. It dispels doubt, Lord. It, it suddenly creates the kingdom of God in us. And, Lord, I, I just want you to do all of that tonight. And all of that's possible. I pray for those online that no matter what's in uh, their life today, no matter what kind of day they've had, I pray that provision and hope and all of the good things that you have for people would be made, uh, made evident in their lives tonight. We pray for our young people that are meeting. Pray you'd anoint uh, them and anoint that meeting, encourage them tonight. We thank you for all that you're doing and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. So let's read, I just want to read a couple of verses. Let's read uh, 12, 13, and 14 in, uh, in Acts chapter 1. And so here we go. Uh, it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers." Uh, let me give you a couple of things that I notice, and these are drawn from, um, um, boy, my brain just went completely. Uh, Stanley Horton. I was thinking, what is that guy's name? Uh, many of you will not know that name. Stanley Horton is, was, he's in heaven now, but he was probably uh, the most contemporary 
well-known Pentecostal theologian of our age. Uh, I would say he's probably being followed by a guy named Doug Ose, who was here several years ago. Doug is a personal friend. He's, uh, he's just stepped down from a teaching position at AGTS. Uh, I've had him in a couple of classes, and he's become a great friend. Um, but Brother Horton uh, wrote a great book on the book of Acts. And so I've leaned upon it heavenly, uh, heavily, hev- heavenly and, and heavily. I have leaned upon it heavenly. It's been... <laughs> See, that's what happens when your brain is running ahead of your mouth or behind, one of the two. I don't know. I was already on to another thought as I was talking about that. Uh, I've leaned upon it uh, heavily, and it's just got some great insights. So I want to I give you a couple of Brother Horton's insights tonight about uh, something here in this, uh, in this uh, verse. Five things that you find in these two verses, and I think there's some great theological truths, and they establish some things that we're still arguing about sometimes in some places in the church. And I think uh, Brother Horton does a great job of kind of kicking that, uh, kicking one of the legs out from under a couple of people's theological stools. I'm having to get back down to where I was. Um, a couple of things here. First of all, uh, it says here in, um, in verse 12 that they were all together in one accord. Now, um, a little earlier in the chapter it says that. And uh, I just want you to notice a couple of things here. Um, together, this word together, when the scriptures use that, it is one of Luke's favorite words. He uses it a lot in, in his gospel. Uh, it, anytime you see the word together or in one accord with one mind, the, the NASB uses the phrase in one mind. Uh, it is a, and I, I, for a long time, I'd bring the blackboard in and I'd write it out in Greek for you. And, and all of you would just look at me like I was it was Greek to you, right? That's what it was. And so I didn't do that, but it is the, it's the word homothumadon. Now, homo, you know, homo sapien, uh, homosexual, that, that Greek prefix speaks to something being uh, homogenous, being one thing, being like in some way. And it, it speaks to the fact that there is one thought, one purpose, one intent and as I said, it's one of Luke's favorite words. He talks about the unity that exists among the brethren that are ultimately going to be in the upper room. I think there's a great theological truth there about what it takes for a group of people to be recipients of God's divine outpouring of his presence and his power. You can't be factioned. You can't be arguing. You can't be moving in multiple directions. I think that principle holds true in marriage. I think it holds true in organizations. It certainly holds true in leadership groups and in his church. If God's people are going to do what he wants them to do, they have to be unified in vision and in purpose and in heart and in intent. Say amen. Amen. So when you think about, and this is not, I'm not trying to jerk the legs out from under anybody's right to be you know, I, I, you know, I disagree. That's not it. It, it. There comes a point in time, however, where, where the unity of the body of Christ is powerfully necessary. Um, divergent opinions need to come. There's strength in that. But there comes a point in time when it gets down to the rock bottom of what God's called us to do, where we all got to get on board. Amen? And your involvement, everybody, my involvement, our, our, our collective uh, involvement is a powerful piece in God's anointing. I love Psalm 133. How beautiful it is when brethren dwell together in unity. It's like the anointing oil that was poured onto Aaron and it flowed down over his beard. There's a phrase in that that talks about it's like the dew on Mount Hermon. The, if you've never been to Israel, Mount Hermon is snow-capped much of the year. It is in the I think northern, I had to think about which way I was, I've only been to Israel once. I had, okay, which way was I looking when I saw Mount Hermon? It is, it's the snow melt off of Mount Hermon and the, it's, I don't know that it's, I said snow covered. It's, it's, it's got a lot of uh, um, streams and from the snow that comes off of it, it provides in the area of the Galilee, uh, 
moisture that doesn't exist further south in Israel. That's why the Galilee is always talked about being green and lush and blooming with flowers. And when you go to Israel, the area of the Galilee is, is, the, is the most beautiful area. And it's because of that, it's because of that dew that is constantly on the ground in the morning that comes because of the moisture that Mount Hermon puts in the air. Now, what's that got to do with Acts? It's not, it's not directly linked, but it is that refreshing. And it's interesting that that dew, it says, and it's like the dew from Mount Hermon, and it talks about it, and it produces life forevermore. And remember, that's unity that, that Psalms 133 is talking about. And so when they're dwelling together in unity, we think about what are the pieces of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. One of them was that they were all together in one mind, in one heart, in one accord. And so if you're always the one that goes, you know, I've, I've heard one of, one of my friends uh, said in a sermon one day that there are some people that, that come out of the womb and, and they come out opposed. That's like the first word they know. Well, to what? Whatever. I am contrary in all my ways. Anybody know somebody like that? No, I hope none of you do. But, but that's not the heart of the Lord. The Lord brings things together. And they were in one accord uh, in, in, on, the day of, on the day of Pentecost. It also says that they all, as we get to, this, uh, the, to these verses, this is a little bit, this is all coming before these verses. It says they all joined constantly in prayer. Now, there's a couple of things that I want you to notice. This isn't the piece where I'm, 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 I said that we have a presupposition that, that we can't prove. But, but I think this is also a picture that you have. When you think about what the disciples were doing and the 120, uh, when you think about, and, oh, and I, I did do some research. It's about 10 days. Remember I said I didn't know how long it was between the time that Jesus ascended and the day of Pentecost? It's about 10 days. I said we didn't know. Well, we do know. And now I know. It's 10 days, all right? About 10 days between when they believed the ascension of Jesus would have taken place, if you work all the math out, and when the day of Pentecost comes, it's about 10 days, all right? Now, it, it says that they were constantly in prayer. When you picture that in your mind, where is that prayer taking place? Anybody not see them in the upper room? All right. But Luke, watch this. In Luke chapter 25, verse 43, talking about the regular habit of the disciples, and even perhaps after the ascension, speaks of them going to the temple daily. So they may not have just been hovering in the upper room. Uh, people went to the temple twice a day, at the 9 o'clock hour and at the 3 o'clock hour. And most theologians that write about this kicked one of my, wait a minute, they messed up my picture in my head of what was going on in the upper room. They are probably leaving. The upper room served as sort of their headquarters. And they were almost certainly going to the temple at the 9 o'clock and the 3 o'clock hour. Um, in just a second, I'll, I don't want to give away too much because there's an interesting piece there. All right, number three, there's, uh, there are a number of women that are with them. So if you ever hear anybody, oh, women don't have any place in what God's doing, you need to just say, I love you, brother or sister, but you are wrong, all right? Because there's a whole list here uh, that are given. Uh, the, the, and in fact, the women had been present all along in the ministry of Jesus. They supported him in his ministries. Um, there's an interesting thing in the language of that day, and I don't know if this stuff interests you, but, but I think it's interesting to note that any time there is a group, that, and this is, this is also like uh, something that happens in Spanish. Greek comes from Latin, which comes, uh, Spanish and Greek come from Latin, and there's a thing that happens with the pronoun that is used with a group uh, of people. Anytime there is, and this is what's true in Greek, anytime there is even one male present in a group, guess which pronoun is used? The masculine pronoun is used. So just because it says brethren, or it uses a masculine um, um, sense of the verb, because the, in the language it, it, carries the, it carries the gender. We don't do that in English, but in both of those languages they do. Just because it's a masculine gendered verb, or in this case pronoun, does not mean they were all men. If there's even one man, the, the language indicates it as a male group, 
But that's true in Greek even to this day. So just because the language says brethren, which sounds masculine, I don't know that there is a, I don't know what the word would be. Yeah, sisterin? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, no, it's not. But I just don't want you to m- misconstrue that. In those days, if even one man was present, the masculine pronoun is used for the mixed group. So even when Peter called them brothers in verse 16, that included women. We wouldn't get that in the English. But that's absolutely true that there would have been women present. Um, in fact, they include, there's even a list that are found, it's found in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 and 3, and in Luke uh, 23, uh, verses 20, uh, 49 and 54 through 56, and then chapter 24, 1 through 10, all of those places list these, a number of women are known by name. Mary Magdalene is there, Salome is there, Joanna is there, Mary and Martha of Bethany are there, John Mark's mother, uh, Susanna is there. John Mark's mother, Susanna, is there another, and some others who follow Jesus. There's even a pretty good belief that comes from Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, that there were women who supported the ministry of Jesus. So, you know, that's what I wanted. That's why I married Leanne, a woman who could support my ministry, you know, while I, while I worked. Uh, is that the ice cream truck? <laughs> I'm sorry, but that's, you know, that, that music is, you know, that, that's squirrel. You know, that's ice cream truck. We got it. Josh, I need 50 cents right now. Any good deacon would go get me an ice cream. Mm. Yeah, bottles. Got to go pick up some bottles so we'll have money for the ice cream truck. Now, and there's another piece that's in here. Uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is given special mention. Um... She is certainly present because John had made the commitment to the Lord about taking care of the mother of Jesus. Uh, But there's no indication that she was a leader. Um, She was simply joined with the others in prayer and in receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, It's sort of, and if if you're a devout Catholic in the room or watching this, it does sort of mess up your Catholic theology a little bit. Because she's not divine. She's in the upper room. She's endued with power in the upper room, just like all the rest of the believers were. So I just wanted you to see that, right? Um, And there's a really interesting thing that I had not thought about until I read some more in, uh, in brother, I got brother Hogan. That's not brother... Horton. I got, I got J. Paul Hogan and my Pat knew all these people, but I did. But it's Brother Horton, uh, Brother Stanley Horton. Um, there's also every, it, it, it is listed that the brothers of Jesus are present. Now, these are the same brothers that didn't believe in him. If you remember in Mark chapter 3, and then in John chapter 7, they, they didn't really believe in who he said he was until, I think, the cross and certainly the resurrection. What's it like, now watch this, to, to have your, now he's the oldest. Jesus would have been the oldest of the siblings. But to, to have been a self-confessed doubter in his messianic position, and now you find yourself having known him to have died and he's resurrected I mean now think about brothers here all right this is the ultimate oops <laughs> oops I've messed up because he isn't like just my older brother he's like God you got it I just wanted you to think about that yeah so Josh you can you know Beth you should you know I'm trying to think if we got any more siblings Kathy what's up Yeah. Didn't believe in him when he first started professing himself to be something more than their brother. That what you just said, for those of you that are online, Kathy said, so Jesus' life up until he was 30, we believe, was so insignificant that his brothers didn't, let me say it a little different and you see if you agree with this, Kathy, they didn't know who he was. That's absolutely true. In fact, there's an Old Testament scripture that talks about him in his appearance and in his life prior to his ministry that says that there was nothing about him that drew people to him. 
Nothing about his appearance, nothing about his activity, the way that theologians interpret that scripture. There was nothing about him that, that, that differentiated him from, from the crowds until, and most people believe, until the baptism by John the Baptist when the Holy Spirit comes down and descends upon him. Uh, when John when John sees him walking up to him, remember, does everybody remember the relationship? There is a family relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus. What are they? They're cousins. And you remember Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, when Mary is before the magnificent, remember the, the speech of Mary where she says the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And, you know, there, there's an incredible dialogue by Mary in the scriptures. And when she comes to Mary, the first time that they, we believe, first time they see each other expecting, Mary says, or no, excuse me, Elizabeth says, my baby, the baby in me has jumped in my womb. And Mary, Elizabeth is sort of, she knows who Mary is carrying, and that's John the Baptist in her womb. And so we, we don't see any, we don't know that there's any other great uh, certainly they would around each other. I, we don't have any idea about, and this is off, but it's a great question, and it, it got, my, got me going. Just a second. Uh, we don't know that there's a lot of, there may have been interaction, but there's this moment where John the Baptist sees Jesus coming toward. John is at the River Jordan. He's baptizing people. He sees Jesus, who is his cousin. Uh, and I don't know. I think about cousins like I think about brothers. You know, you're, you're you know, um, and now it's interesting. I don't know. Does anybody know whether John the Baptist was older or whether Jesus was older? Which one was? They were both in their mother's wombs at the same time, but one of them's older. And John's oldest? Older? Further along. Yeah. And so, so Jesus is walking towards his older cousin. John's been baptizing and he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it's like the first, it's like the coming out party of Jesus as it relates to the beginning of his ministry. And he's baptized by John. The Spirit of the Lord falls upon him. He's instantly sent by the Spirit into the wilderness. That's when that happens, where he's tempted of the devil. All of that happens before his ministry begins. So the answer to your question is yes, Kathy. There was, no, there was nothing about Jesus that made us know who he was before then. Kat, uh, hang on just a second. Carol? Yeah. How did Mary know to direct the servants at the wedding? Yeah. Does everybody know what? Okay, Carol said two things, and Carol, I'm repeating it for the people online, that uh, we don't know whether or not the mother of John the Baptist repeated to him after he was born, as he grows, the events that occurred early in her interaction with Mary. Second thing Carol said was that, how did his mother know to direct the servants at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now, if any of you don't know that, the wedding in Cana of Galilee is where Jesus' first miracle takes place. It's where he turns the water to wine. And there's a really, and Carol, if I'm not answering your question, please help me, but there's a really interesting moment because Mary comes to Jesus, who's just attending the wedding, and he's not done any miracles yet. And she says, they're out of wine. And he says to his mom, what's that to me? And, and, and basically said, my time's not come yet. And her, being the mom that she is, she turns to the servants and says, whatever he tells you to do, do. It's like she says, I don't care if your time's not come yet. There's a problem here for a friend of mine at this. And we would, it, it seems to have been some sort of connection with the families that he's at this wedding. We don't know that. That's speculation. And so she ignores everything that Jesus has just said and turns to the servants and says, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. And then Jesus says, go get some things of water. It's like, what am I going to do with my mom? You know, I mean, you know, there's a, it's, it feels a lot like that in the reading. Go get some big pitchers of water, bring it here. And he prays over it and it's turned into wine. Um, how does she know? Um, well, okay, a couple of things. First of all, do you remember when the wise men came and the gifts were, remember, and they, remember it says, and she stored, yeah, pondered these things and she stored them up in her heart. Mary knows. Now, 
I tend to believe that if you go through 30 years, now, and let's get, we've we got to get back to the book of Acts, but this is all, this is why I love the book of Acts, because there's so much good stuff here, all right? Hang on just a second, Vicki, I've got to get this out, because I'll forget it. You can't run me down another rabbit trail until I get this one done. Hold on a minute, all right? You guys sit like bumps on a pickle every other night, and then tonight, everybody's got a question, all right? It's good, though. I love them. It's pregnancy. Is that what you know? Yeah, but wait a minute. Yeah, it is. Hold on. Just hold on a minute. People online can't hear all this, and they're wondering why I'm so scattered. Um, see, you told me it made me lose my thought with that divine pregnancy thing. Uh, that's why if, I'm never trying to be rude. You have to let me stop and get one thought, because my mind starts taking off on that, and then I lose it. Um, so there is a, um, if, if we think about, back to Carol's point, it, with the, with the, with the idea of um, Mary and how did she know, all right? So she is moved upon, the Holy Spirit comes upon her, and, and she becomes pregnant by the Holy Spirit. She certainly knows that she is to be the mother of the Messiah. Jesus is born ultimately after, I don't believe it was when he was a little baby. I think he's a small child. These, these wise men come, they present gold and frankincense and myrrh, and they, they, they hail him king of the Jews. She and Joseph have to flee into Egypt in order to protect his life. At some point in time, word comes from the Lord that the, you know, that the, in a dream to Joseph that those that are trying to take the child's life are dead and they can return home. And then there is this long protracted period of time, somewhere in the neighborhood of 25, we don't know how long there, but a long time. And what does time do to anything? And, And there's no indication that, you know, you see all these cartoons, you know, if we're trying to give Jesus a bath, and, you know, she can't put him in the water because the water parts, you know. It's, come on, you know, I mean, he's a little baby and the water won't stay. I mean, you see all these cartoons and stuff. But the, uh, the thing is this, that time with anything, and, and I have to think, too, that, that there are moments, and the Scripture even gives an indication of this, that there are moments when Mary reflects upon what he's come to do. And there's no mother that can understand that he's, and I think of all of, now this is my own opinion, of all the characters that missed what Jesus's real purpose was, she didn't. Because remember there's there's also a scripture, sorry I can't quote all these references, that talks about how that, and that this would, was it pierce your heart? There's a verse that talks about how that, that yeah that, yeah, that Simon, that's right, when Simon prays over Jesus, he's waited for the, that's right, and he talks about how to her, how this is going to be, this is going to, this is going to cut your heart, this is going to pierce your heart. I think she knows more than, she may not know the exact pieces of it, but she knows that this isn't going to be a, a simple deal. And so she, I think that a large amount of time makes you want life to just be normal. He's grown, we believe, working in the carpenter shop with Joseph until we believe Joseph is out of the picture. We don't know why, but we believe, most people believe that Joseph didn't live a long time. He's not in the picture in the ministry years of Jesus. And then there comes this moment where he goes to this wedding and he's who she knows him to be. And how did she know Carol? I because I think she's always known. I think she's, yeah. Yeah, maybe maybe she's just being a mom now. You know what I mean? Look, look, you got to take care of this. You know, you got. And uh, I don't know. Maybe it's just a mom. Dan, you going to say something? Do you think that? Uh, I'm thinking back to the example when Jesus went to the temple and his family left and he stayed behind. I think most of the family. Maybe it was just Jesus and Mary talked about it. But I think there had to be something to know that you could be set apart, right? Yeah, he's, I think what we believe he was 12 when that happened uh, in the temple. And they leave him and they go several days journey and they, they go, you know, you know, it's like the, any of y'all leave a, ever leave a child at the church because you're in two cars and then he was, you know, we did that once. Uh, Miriam, what do you think? Michael, oh, I have a different question. So, related back to your brethren. 
we'll get back to that in a minute. All right. Uh, so, no, we're way past that. We're not going back to that. All right. You, can, you miss your way. No, go ahead and ask it down. Right. Now, it's because you said the, uh, the brethren that covers women, too. So it's a good possibility his sisters were there, too. Could have been. Yeah, they're not named. But we don't think that, the, that only the women that are listed are the ones that were there. The women were a part of the ministry of Jesus. So, all right. Now, there is a... Uh, Let's move on to verse 15, because I, I want to get to, uh, I mean, it's 7.30, and we haven't gotten the two verses talked about. So, we're going to be in the book of Acts for uh, two and a half years, all right? Yeah. Well, we were, that, we were almost that long in the Matthew, so hey, if it takes that long, it takes that long. Let's look at verse 15. It says, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. He said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle of it, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood, for it is written in the book of Psalms. May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, um, a couple of interesting things in here. Um, the... Um, if you read Luke's gospel, um, it, it says that he hung himself. Now, in, in biblical times, when we think of somebody hung himself, we think, get a rope, tie a noose, hook it to a tree, put the rope around your neck, jump off something, hang yourself. In, in, in biblical times, there were only two kinds of hangings, and that wasn't one of them. When that word is used, there are only two kinds of things. One is crucifixion, and the other is that people are hung on a pole that a sharp stick, a sharp pole, and people were dropped on it, piercing them through their stomach, and they were hung up in the air. And that was the way that Romans often impaled people like that. So most people believe that what happened to Judas was that he couldn't crucify himself and be hung. But if you think about the other one, it matches this account and other accounts where his bowels gushed out. Most people believe, most theologians believe that the way that you interpret that is that he took a sharp pole, set it in the ground, threw himself on it, and his bowels burst out, and he hung himself in that way. That fits both, uh, both, both accounts, all right? Um, it's interesting that the disciples believed so strongly that they had to replace Judas. Now, um, there's an interesting, one little interesting side note here that I thought worth mentioning. There is some pretty, pretty uh, uh, established thought. Uh, I don't think it's right, but it is, uh, it's interesting. There are some that think that the disciples uh, pulled the trigger too quick. That Matthias wasn't supposed to be the twelfth. Uh, that there was another guy that was going to be the 12th. And, and you know who it was. It's Paul. That Paul was intended to be the Lord's 12th. The reason that that's significant, not, not so much whether they're right or not, but that there needed to be 12 is there's a lot of prophetic scripture in uh, time things that talk about the 12 elders and, and 12 from the tribes that and most people believe that the 24 elders make up the 12 apostles and the heads of the tribes. I think we mentioned that. We mentioned that last, last week. And most people go, well, you can't leave Paul out of that because he's, like he's like an important guy. That's kind of where that comes from. There's no biblical substantiation for that. But it's an interesting thought, thought that they believed that the 12 were so significant, not because of the number, but because of the job that those 12 had been given. Uh, that they were to be 
sent ones, carriers of the message of Jesus. They didn't really know, I don't think, all that that meant, but they understood that Jesus had picked 12 and that the responsibilities upon those 12 were so, you know, uh, so, uh, so weighty and so heavy that they didn't want to leave an empty spot. And it would seem uh, that they followed a very, um, a very um, um, common practice. Um, it is, uh, it's found in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. Uh, that, that verse of scripture says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So it wasn't uncommon for decisions to be made in that way, believing that the Lord would reveal his purpose through a, through a, through a draw, through a, through a lot. And you understand that's like we, we all pick straws and who got the short one, that's that sort of thing. Uh, that the Lord would remove the chance and he would direct his purposes through the casting of lots. Um, the, uh, as I said, some, some suggest that Paul was the Lord's choice, but Matthias was the Lord's choice. Uh, they prayed, they asked the Lord, and the Lord did choose Matthias to fill this office. The, uh, I think it's an interesting, uh, just sort of an interesting side note. Now, I want to get on to, uh, on to chapter 2. All right, because there's a really, this is where the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. And it's here that we find, um, as I said, a really interesting what if that I, I suggest that our presuppositions could very well be wrong. And, um, and I think I'm in good company because Brother Horton agrees with me. <laughs> and he's in heaven and he knows now. So he would have, you know, he would have let me know, I'm sure. A really interesting note. How many of you know? I know Carol and Dick. I saw you. Pat would certainly. Any of you know the name Stanley Horton before tonight? I mean, any of the rest of you? He's so. This next story is not. Dan's got his name up. Yeah, he went to. He went to Evangel and his. Dan, do y'all know that Dan's like uh, Assembly of God royalty? Y'all probably didn't know that about him. His aunt Esther Wood was George Wood's secretary for, and, and y'all don't, they don't know who George Wood is, so they don't know. Dr. George Wood was the general superintendent of the Assemblies of God for many years, and Esther Wood was his secretary, and that's Dan's aunt. And so he's like related to somebody that lived close to the Holy of Holies. <laughs> All right? There you go. So see what I mean? He knows everybody. Uh, he was still in diapers when all that happened, but yeah. But let me let me tell you my most intimidating one of my most intimidating ministry moments ever had Brother Horton in it. Now, Brother Horton was, I mean, like I said, he has just written a number of of theological books that are just still very weighty in Pentecostal circles. And I was, me and two other guys were asked to write the resolution to the general council that changed the Assemblies of God's stance on divorce and remarriage for ministers. Uh, we, we submitted it at Kansas City. This has been a long time ago now. Uh, and I was the third person. We had, we had each worked out which part of this resolution that we would speak to. And you had to present these, uh, the, you presented it months before, but then you had, to, you had to speak to it on the general council floor. Now, the general council, you're talking about a meeting that's got, well, when we went in Anaheim, Sue, how many were there, like 20,000 people? That, and, and at the business session, you're talking about three or four, 5,000 uh, ministers all right, and so you, there's probably a dozen microphones, and one of my buddies is at one. I'm uh, another guy, and I'm on the f left. And each you, you, you speak to the affirmative, and then in turn, they let someone speak against the resolution. So we're all speaking in the positive for the resolution, but in between each of us and after each one of us, someone gets to speak against it. And so the first guy goes and somebody speaks against it and the second guy goes and somebody speaks against it and then I speak and I and you you walk up to a microphone it has a little thing you push a button and it lights up on the on the chairman's he, he knows because it's a huge room and I'm speaking I've got my notes and you're not supposed to you can't read you can't they won't let you you have to you got to be in the moment you have to know your stuff you can't just read they won't let you just read something off and so I'm talking into the microphone and I see movement of who's going to speak after me against it. And he's going to speak against what I'm saying. And I look over and guess who it is? It's Stanley Horton. And I'm like, oh, I am so dead. 
I mean, I'm just going, I'm just going to die. And everybody that I know in the ministry is in this room. And they're all going to watch me be shredded by Stanley Horton. That's what's going through my mind. And I'm supposed to not read. I'm supposed to, and I get my points out. And Brother Horton has pushed the button. And the chairman calls for the vote. And he doesn't let Brother Horton speak. And, and I still love George Wood to this day because he <laughs> saved my bacon and kept me from being shredded. Because I'm telling you, he was, you know, that, that's this guy. That's the guy that was going to speak after me. And I was like, there is a God and he loves me. All right. <laughs> and the resolution passed and we moved it to what I believe to be a very biblical position. And, uh, and that's still the position in the AG today. But uh, so we get to this place that has nothing to do with Acts. That's my Stanley Horton story. Right. He was a wonderful man, wonderful man. He wasn't, he wouldn't have been rude in any way. He would have been kind, but I was glad he didn't get to speak. All right. Uh, day of Pentecost comes. All right. Let's read the uh, first few verses. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Now, a couple of things here. Uh, there is this sudden sound of wind. It fills uh, the, what the scripture says is house, right? Uh, there's another great Pentecostal theologian. His name's Anthony De Palma, and he writes a lot of really good stuff about, uh, in a book called The Holy Spirit, A Pentecostal Perspective. You can get that on Amazon if you wanted to read just about Pentecostal doctrine and, and about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's a great book to get. Anthony De Palma. Uh, Anthony D. Palma. His last name is P-A-L-M-A. And it's just called the Holy Spirit, a Pentecostal perspective. And um, it, in, in, in this section where it says, and where they were sitting, all right? Now, let me, let me give you this right now. Where is that? In your mind, where, does, where is it that that just happened? Upper room. Everybody agree? That's in, every, now, now everybody's like, I'm not voting. You've told me you're going <laughs> to... I've pulled this on you before, haven't I? We don't know. There's no, and here's the deal that's our presupposition. There's nothing that says they were in the upper room when the Holy Spirit was poured out. We have assumed that because we do know that they were meeting in the upper room at times because of chapter 1 and some other places later on. But they were also going to the temple every day. Now, and here's, here's why this may have some substance to it. Do you remember how many people gathered like that when they heard them? Now, the upper room would have been in more of a, if I say residential, I don't think any, including me, we don't know exactly what that setting because we don't know where it was. Uh, because in 134 AD, the city of, not, the temple was destroyed in 70, but the whole city of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in 134, right? And they built a Gentile city over the top of, and so when you go to Jerusalem today and they say, this is the upper room, you go, no, no, the, it wasn't. Because the Romans, I mean, they destroyed the city of Jerusalem in 134. We know where some things were and some things have been reestablished. We know where the Temple Mount and there's some, I mean, found, I mean, there's been some excavations some archaeology, those things, but there was a city built over, multiple cities built over and since the time of, of Christ in, in Jerusalem. Now, but there's a fairly good camp, including Brother Horton, that believes that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit may have happened in the court of the women in the temple. And... Because of the crowd and because of the place where, the, where they know that they were going to pray, there is some that believe that the upper room was their headquarters. It was sort of where they came back to, where they held meetings and stuff, but that the place that they went to tarry and pray was in the temple. And that the reason that there is so many devout people from, you see how this kind of makes sense? And devout men from every nation we hear them praising God in languages that we know they don't know, that sort of makes a lot more sense if the outpouring of the Holy Spirit happens in one of the porticades in the court of the women. The reason that we know that, it, why, why would we know that it would have to be the court of women? Because women were there. They couldn't have been in the, in, into the, in the in where the men were. They would have had to have been at least in the court of women. And that 
there were, if I say porticos, little, little, there could have been places more private off where they, and, and the ruckus of, the, of them praising God in these languages, that makes a lot of sense if that happened in the temple. Now, I'm, not, I'm not trying to mess up your Pentecost, all right? I just want you to, when I read that, that was new to me. And when I went back through Brother Horton's book, I went, he, he's the one that put that in. And I went, ooh, he's a really smart guy. And that really makes sense with the crowd that gathered so quickly. And why they got in so much trouble for preaching Jesus so quickly. Because they're doing it in the temple. Um, so... I don't know that the locale is significant, and if you have some real strong feeling, I, I apologize for messing up your Pentecost. Didn't mess up mine. I've been studying a long time. I just want more of the Holy Spirit, but it's a really interesting idea, isn't it? Uh, I mean, I've been, I've been reading the scriptures for a long, long time, and I have read a lot of stuff. And when I was going back through Brother Horton's book today, I went, oh, that is really interesting. You never exhaust it, do you? You never, you never quit having things challenge you about where that happened. Now, really interesting things here. Some of this is supposition. Some of it is in the scriptures. Talking about the fire and the, and the, and the wind. Um, the sound of wind is found in several places. You know that in the Old Testament uh, when divine manifestations take place. Uh, God spoke to Job out of a storm. That most theologians believe was a windstorm. That's in Job 38 and 40. Job chapter 38 and chapter 40. Uh, it is a, a, a mighty east wind that uh, dries up the, uh, the, the path through the Red Sea, enabling the Israelites to escape from Egypt on dry ground in Exodus chapter 14. Uh, it's also a very frequent symbol of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. We see that in Ezekiel chapter 37. Uh, and Jesus referred to wind in speaking of the Spirit in John chapter 3. So the sound and the, the association with the Spirit of God is common in Old Testament thinking. And so it makes sense that they would have instantly made some connection between the Holy Spirit. Jesus said... Remember, remember what they are waiting on. They're waiting, and they know that they're waiting on it. They're waiting on the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, tarry in Jerusalem, all right? You shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit. So they, they have this association. It's interesting to me that the two symbols throughout Old Testament reading for the Holy Spirit are wind and fire. So whether this was a, I don't think that symbol is primarily for us as much as it is them, when they hear this noise, it sounds like wind. It doesn't say a wind blew through. Things weren't falling over. It says a sound like wind. And then fire. All right? Uh, as I said, it, it, just as suddenly as the wind, there seems, there, there appears what seems, the scripture says, to be tongues of fire. Uh, tongues indicates separation. That it wasn't like a glowing mass. That, you know the way a fire you know, has tongues that come up on it. That, that seems to be what it looked like. A ball or a mass of flames appeared over. There's one writer that thinks that there was a fire over the whole group. And I can't find any biblical truth for this, but it was sort of interesting to think about how it might have happened. And then it separates onto each individual person. Um, Fire and light are also very common symbols throughout the scriptures for divine presence. Uh, Moses in, in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. Uh, the Lord's presence in fire on Mount Sinai. Uh, and the, the covenant established in Exodus chapter 19. There's lots of fire uh, and smoke and things that came out of that. Um, the spirit when it came in power upon Samson in Judges chapter 15. If you remember, it charred the ropes. It was the spirit that burned the ropes off of Samson in Judges 15. And in 1 Kings, it was the fire of the Lord that burned up Elijah's sacrifice uh, on, you know, with the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah. All over the Old Testament, fire is seen uh, uh, in connection with the outpouring of the Spirit. You see it in Isaiah, you see it in Ezekiel, you see it in Joel, you see it in Zechariah. Very common symbol, fire. Um, and uh, tongues also indicates uh, speech. And they begin to speak in tongues. Uh, a powerful prophetic witness that the Holy Spirit would give. All right?
Um, so we, we see these symbols. It's, um, it is a, I don't know, it's just a powerful picture when you dwell on it for a moment. And you, you let, the, uh, now what's the most, let me ask you a question. What's the most significant, yes, power that comes to the individual, I get that. But there's another event that I want to make sure that you, that you register that, that we believe that this moment um, accomplished. Uh, it empowers the believers to be witnesses. But there's another event that most theologians believe is, is really what this is about. Anybody know what that is? The birth of the church. The birth of this thing that we participate in. Um, not in an organizational sense, in a body of Christ sense. That that began at that moment. That you are now part of something launched by God on the day of Pentecost. Now, let me give you a couple of other just uh, historical pieces just to make sure that you, that you get those. Um, and I told you this last week, Pentecost meaning 50. Uh, this this uh, day of Pentecost, uh, the Feast of Pentecost is also called, also called the Feast of Weeks. Uh, because it is seven, uh, seven weeks, uh, seven sets of weeks uh, after Passover, 49 days, and Pentecost is the 50th day. That's why, it's, that's why this feast happens on this day. And so the Holy Spirit is poured out on the 120 that are there, men, women, and they are then empowered. We talked quite a bit last week about what happens to them. Certainly Peter's the best example of that where this guy who has been so afraid. Uh, now let's read verse 4. And when they were filled, when they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Um, there's another interesting what if. If they are in the temple, what was the temple symbol of? What was the temple about? People went to the temple to do what? And daily in the temple, they weren't, there were sacrifices being made, but most people didn't go to the temple every day to bring a sacrifice. They went there for something else. What did they go there for? Worship and to pray. Okay? It's interesting to me that if they were in the temple when this happens, what is it that, and let me, let me say it this way, because I think you'll, you won't get it if I don't. Something changes locale on the day of Pentecost. Something changes location on the day of Pentecost. What was it? it say it again, Dan. Yeah, they, their heart got energized for the love of God. I like that. There it is right there. What is it, Jane? Yes, yeah, suddenly, watch this. Uh, I, I will reside in a temple, not what? Not made by human hands. Where is that temple? Where is a temple? Right here. Know ye not, know ye not, ye are the temple. Any of y'all old enough to remember that song? No, you not. No, you not. No? Where you guys been? <laughs> Carol, me and you are shaking our hands, but nobody else is. No, you not. No, you not. You are the temple. No, you not. No, you not. You are the temple. You are the temple of the Holy Ghost. You know the symbols? You know the, we used to do the hand motions. We don't do songs with hand motions anymore. Filled with praise, filled with power, filled with glory. Filled with praise, filled with power. Those are CA songs. How many of you don't know what CAs are? John, you don't have any idea what CAs are, do you? Christ ambassadors, man. That's what the youth group used to be called. We used to sing all them songs. We are Christ ambassador, and our banners we must unfurl. We anyway, okay. All of you guys are out in the world when us when I say people are having church, all right? No, listen. Um, there's a theological truth in that, though, and, that, and this is what's interesting about Brother Horton's theory, is that if they are in the temple, it makes a lot of sense that suddenly the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and he says, now look, I've been dwelling here. Remember why Solomon, Solomon didn't just build the temple because he wanted to. David didn't make provision for Solomon to build the temple because he wanted to. Why'd they build the temple? They were, they were told to do so. By whom? God, right? And... 
And, and then there comes this moment, and do you remember what happens to the veil when Jesus dies on a cross? The veil of the temple is rent. What's the symbolism there? All of a sudden, the Holy of Holies is approachable. Anybody can come in. All right? And then they're worshiping in the temple, and the church is launched. Now, just think of all the pieces that kind of line up here. The Holy Spirit comes into them, and no longer is that temple the place where God dwells, but now he dwells in their heart. Jesus even said, we have been with you, we shall be in you. And now he is. And you and I now, because of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, we are now temples of the Spirit of God. Um, there's all kinds of wonderful blessings and responsibilities of that. That we are conveyors of the kingdom of God. You, you, every day when you go to work, the kingdom of God goes to work. Remember the little braces, what would Jesus do? Those are great symbols for the fact that, hey, you are living, breathing salt and light. You bring the temple. You, you are the temple. You're the place where the Lord dwells. When, when, you, when you walk into relationships, when you walk into conversations, when you engage in whatever you're engaging in, you just brought the temple of God into that place. Wonderful blessing, isn't it? But it also kind of makes you think a minute, doesn't it? Oh, I, I think I've been taking my temple some places I shouldn't be. You see what I mean? That's, and that's, is there grace? Yes, absolutely. But it, it totally changes. If, if they are in, it totally changes the way I think about it. If they're in the temple when the Holy Spirit is poured out, boy, there's some powerful symbolism of the shifting of where the Holy Spirit resided and what God's work is. And... And it, it makes sense, too, with the power thing. You shall receive power. The power had been upon the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. One guy, the high priest, got to go in one time a year. The veil was rent. Now, all of a sudden, the tangible presence of God, the Shekinah, do you know that Old Testament term? Shekinah glory of God that dwelt upon, you could see it above the Ark. That now doesn't dwell there. It, the fire has now... And I don't, now, now I'm really making up some stuff. You ready? But the fire that appears above them, all right? Do, do, you, do you know the, the symbolic pictures of, of uh, wh how the Lord dwelt over the ark and the way the priest, and, I mean, all of that now comes to dwell inside the believer. Now, so when you start thinking about the power of God and you start thinking about the ark, remember when the, uh, I forget the guy's name, the ark was carrying and the, and the oxen stumbled and the poor guy reached up to steady it and he touched it and the Lord struck him dead and David got really, goodness gracious, the guy said, how can you, it's a bad idea to get mad at the Lord, I'm just telling you right now, but anyway, um, but that, that, it's that power that came to dwell and hovered over the believers in the upper, in, uh, see, in the upper room. Uh, it's, it's in there. I can't, can't deprogram that on the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon their hearts. I think if we could, the scripture says that as long as the heir is a child, others rule in his stead. But when he becomes of age, he, he takes over the ruling of the kingdom. I think, I think they're, I think we are Holy Spirit children. And if we ever understand what has been done and the faith arises in us as it was in them, um, my goodness, the things that the Lord might be able to do in the world through us. Uh, that same power, that same power. Scripture says the same power that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. Um, so, good stuff. So, the fire comes, the power comes. Um, remember when you think about the Holy Spirit in this, I think sometimes when we think about the fire and the symbol of the fire and the, and the tongues and, the, and all of that, it can, it can be pretty easy for me to, to depersonify the Holy Spirit. We, used to, we, we, didn't used to, we didn't used to call him the Holy Spirit. And that was even worse. We called him the Holy Ghost. Ooh, ooh, all right. And, uh, and then we got educated and we started calling him the Holy Spirit. It's pretty easy when you see him in symbols, fire and wind, to depersonify him. 
remember that the Holy Spirit is a person. Father is a person. Son has personhood and Holy Spirit does as well. Uh, so when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're talking about a relational thing. Don't forget that the Holy Spirit wants to have a relationship. Um, and we're not supposed to see him like a really powerful nine volt battery that got plugged into your spirituality. Ooh, ooh he's like a supercharger. No, he's a person. And, and you need to, you need to, you need to think of it that way. And, uh, so they're all in one accord. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, and they begin to speak in, in languages that no one understood. Uh, the term is, the Greek word is glossaleia, uh, the Greek word for what was going on. Uh, it's, it's where we get the term. The, the glossaeus and lalein are the two Greek words. And from that, we sort of meld that together into the English word glossaleia. Uh, it was entirely, now listen, here's what's interesting. That practice, unlike baptism, unlike um, sacrifice, Jesus being the Lamb of God, lots of shadows and types in the life of Jesus. There is no, there is nothing in Judaism that knows anything about glossaleia. It begins right there. Um, anything that... that prophesying when you when you read that like when you read about Saul prophesying and people ask is he now one of the prophets that wasn't this that there's no indication anywhere in Judaism of what we know as glossolalia speaking in tongues it happens right there um, it is there is a there is some writing where it's where the word novum, N-O-V-U-M. A novum is a, a mark of a new phase of God's interaction. It's a theological term. And they believe that this begins right here. Um, we believe and, um, that speaking in tongues is a normative accompaniment uh, with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is seen uh, in the listing of the gifts and in and the rules that are given for the operation of the gifts in 1 Corinthians 14. Um, speaking in tongues is a part of a believer's life who is filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, Paul talks about and writes about be being filled, continually being filled. 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 Did y'all hear Arkansas reach up into my vocabulary? If I say hill... Or fill, and I don't think about it, it comes out heal or feel, all right? So I have to watch those words. Mm. The, this is the sign. We believe as uh, Pentecostal believers that the sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues. Um, it is, um, now let's talk about that just for a second. Let's wrap this up with that. Let me give you some scripture references from some other places. Um, when, when Paul writes about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, and you do know that if I, if I said 1 Corinthians 13, what do we call that chapter? The love chapter. But do you understand that 1 Corinthians 13, though it does speak a lot about love, it speaks about love in a very particular context? Chapter 12, 13, and 14 of 1 Corinthians are rules, all of them, for the operation of the gifts of the Spirit. It's not primarily a thesis on love. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 are a guidebook for the operation of the gifts of the Spirit. And love is used to speak about the enduring quality and this, the way that, that uh, the gifts are supposed to operate. Do you understand the, does anybody, and let me help you out here for just a second. Let me link love and, and another word. Uh, do you know what the, some of you will know, but I won't, I won't try to, the word charismata. Charismata is a word that is used for the word gifts. The operation of the gifts. It's that Greek word. And if I were to write it out for you, I would write out C-H-A-R-I-S-M-A-T-A. Charismata. And it is, it, it, it's the first half of that Greek word that I want to direct you to. Uh, 
Uh, for those of you that didn't grow up Pentecostal, or if you did, and you've, you've, you have a little bit of a hesitancy towards it. Oh, I don't know, I've seen some weird stuff. Well, let me tell you, I come from the factory where all that weird stuff is, originates from. All right, I, I come from Arkansas, youth camp, and the Assemblies of God was birthed at the First General Council in Hot Springs, Arkansas. The youth camp that I directed is just right outside town from in Hot Springs. So I'm literally from the birthplace of, of the birthplace of the Assemblies of God. And I have seen some stuff, all right? And we don't really see a lot of craziness anymore. Um, and that's an unkind term. Uh, but I just want to make sure that you understand the biblical position. Charismata, the first part of that word for gifts, when Paul uses that word, that the word for grace in the New Testament is the word charis. C-H-A-R-I-S. So there is no way to have the word gifts, spiritual gifts, that doesn't include grace. They derive, that word is found in the word used to describe, it is a graceful thing that God laid upon his people. So when you see it in a abrasive or in a, in a confusing or in a destructive, and listen, I'm, I'm being careful, but, but I've been there. Uh, I think people have deviated out from under what God intends uh, the gifts carry grace. They carry, they carry a, a drawing. They carry a... When, when the genuine operation of the gifts takes place, 3,000 people on the first day came together. They weren't running, ah, crazy people. No, they were drawing, running towards it, not away from it. Jane? Yeah, absolutely, it does. And that's, that's my point. It, the gifts don't run people away. They draw people to the Lord. The genuine operation, the gift of tongues. In fact, Paul said that tongues weren't for the believer. They were for the unbeliever. Intended to draw them in and verify the veracity of the fact that God is in the room. So don't be afraid. And, and just, here's the thing that I counsel people all the time. When I hear people struggling with anything, and we, and we see very little of it. I think me talking about it's probably brought it into your minds more than anything that many of you have ever seen. But if you ever feel the sense, here's the best instruction I can give you when you think the Lord's wanting to use you in a gift. It's not a shove, it's a nudge. Um, a great mentor of mine uses that terminology. Um, but it's not a shove. Uh, gift is subject to the person that is the bearer of it. You don't, God doesn't make you do anything. It's graceful. Um, now, I've heard people say the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. I don't really agree with that terminology. He's the Lord. We, we say gentleman like he's a feet, like he's, like he's, he's just sort of soft-spoken. No, he's not. He's the Lord. Uh, when he speaks to me, it's with authority. And, um, so, but he is not, uh, but he's not abrasive and he's not caustic. And when, when the Holy Spirit works, it draws people to the Father and to the body of Christ. I believe that. And I absolutely believe that we are coming into a season in the body of Christ where we're going to see some things of the Holy Spirit that we've never seen before. And they're going to be powerful and they're going to be genuine and they're going to be they're going to be such that it's going to draw people towards him. I absolutely believe that we're coming into that season. We'll, uh, we'll pick up there next week. Any questions, other comments? This has been great tonight. Thank you so much for being a part. Those of you that were online with us, thank you so much. I hope you uh, garnered some things, and we'll pick up in Acts chapter 2 next week. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and for your love and for your presence. We acknowledge you in all that we are. Use us in Jesus' name. Amen.